Do you want to jumpstart your innovation? Applications are open for the 2022 Rosamond Innovators Program. Connect with people who can speed up your scale-up in health tech, subject matter experts, clinicians, partners, and investors. Deadline to apply is April 11th. Visit rosamondinstitute.org to learn more. If we can repair ourselves and be healthy for much longer periods of time, maybe say we can roughly double our life expectancy again. We've already doubled our life expectancy uh, in the past, just um, fighting infectious diseases and through better sanitation and nutrition and things like that. But now we have all these other tools where we're fighting the things that kill us at the end of life, like the, the cancer and the diabetes and the and all of those things. And so um, say we roughly double life expectancy again, uh, how does that change the world? Say we could live to be 150 years old. And uh, how does that impact the environment? How does it impact family life? How does that impact marriage? And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Whether we want to or not, we might be living for a very long time. This is according to our guest today, Sonia Arison. Sonia is an entrepreneur, investor, and best-selling author. She's also the founder of 100 Plus Capital for the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives. Her work explores how the coming age of longevity will change life as we know it. Today, she tells me about what some of these changes could look like. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you, Sonia, for joining me today. I am happy to be here. I'm so excited. I've heard so much about you. I listened to some of your, uh, your interview as well. But I thought it would be interesting for us to start with you telling us about your background and the path that you took to where you are today. Sure. Um, how about I start when I arrived in California? I'm Canadian originally. Ah. And uh, so, yeah, grew up there, went to school there. Um, and uh, I got a job uh, at a think tank in San Francisco in 1999. So I arrived in California in 1999 during the height of the internet boom uh, to direct the Center for Technology Studies at the Pacific Research Institute, which is a think tank in San Francisco. Um, so I've been working at the intersection of technology and public policy for, you know, well, over 20 years, 21, 22 years. Um, and my background's in public policy. I, uh, uh, have a couple of degrees in, um, uh, political science and, uh, and psychology. And so I arrived here then and, um, and was working at the think tank and, uh, and then, uh, you wanted to know how I got interested in, in longevity, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, around 2000, uh, that was the year that the first draft of the human genome was um, published. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair sort of on stage announcing that they've got the new code to life kind of thing. Um, very dramatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm glad to do it that way. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like going back and rewatching the video and just seeing if it's as dramatic as I, as I remember. Um, <laughs> Because if I haven't watched it since then, but uh, you know, I remember showing up at, at the apartment of uh, one of my friends' houses, who uh, who was a hacker, a computer hacker, um, and uh, he had all these books 
all thrown all over his living room floor, uh, introduction to biology books. And I remember thinking, oh, why, what, what are you doing? This, are you, this, is this a change in career? Because you were a very talented hacker and, and did a lot of really cool computer things. And I'm like, you can't possibly be changing um, disciplines. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he looked at me and he's like, no, Sonia, you know, today I'm coding in ones and zeros. Tomorrow I'm going to be coding DNA. And it just, I was just like, boom, really? Okay, that was a huge aha moment for me. Um, and, uh, you know, the ACT and G of DNA um, could be coded just like ones and zeros. Uh-huh. And so, um, so I was super interested in that. And, uh, you know, a bunch of other stuff was happening at the same time with the nanotech bills in D.C. And, um, and so biotech was really kind of getting very, very interesting around that period of time. And so that's, that's when I started getting um, super interested in, in uh, biosciences and, and the, the possibility um, that I had never thought of before, that we might be actually able to repair ourselves rather than just keeping ourselves alive longer but still sick, mm-hmm. um, you know, there might be an alternative. The alternative might be we just fix ourselves like we fix a car. So your heart's breaking down, we fix your heart. We either replace it or we repair it or something like that. And then you're not on drugs and then you're healthy again. And you continue along until the next thing breaks. And then we try to fix that too. And um, that was, that's really a huge paradigm shift from, uh, from where medicine uh, used to be. So yeah. um, it's, it's very, very exciting. I think it's an exciting time to be in healthcare nowadays because I feel like the technology has just exploded. The more, you know, we seem to know a lot more, yet we still don't know a lot more either. Um Yeah, one one scientist put it to me this way. In fact, it was a UCSF scientist put it to me this way. She said, um, she said, you know, science always moves faster than we think it will, and it always moves slower than we think it will. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, no, that's true. That's true. It's um, it's like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know a lot more than you know. Um, so how do you shift from you know what you're doing in? I'm sure when you do the public policy and just focus on the longevity, how do you make that transition? Right. Well, I started writing about uh, public policy around biosciences. So uh, like I mentioned, in in 2000, there was this big push in Congress to uh, fund nanotech research. And so I got super interested in nanotechnology. um, And I started going to, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Foresight Institute, uh, but it was founded by Eric Drexler and Christine Peterson. Um, so I started going to um, Foresight Institute events and, and met all these people who were nanotech experts and, um, and biotech experts. And I, I got really super, uh, super excited about it um, and really just spent a lot more of my time writing about the intersection of, uh, of public policy and uh, longevity science, basically. And so that's, that's, how I, that's how I got involved. And then, and then I came up with this idea for a book. Um, because you know, I, I just I couldn't believe what was happening around me. There were, you know, all these like ideas for nanobombs that could go inside your body and kill cancer precisely. And, um, you know, uh, the ability to regrow human organs was starting to take place. And, um, you know, back then it was uh, experiments in animals, but now, now it's hit the humans, right? Um, it's been a while. I've been doing this a long time. Um, but uh, it was all very, very exciting. And so I, so I thought, well, you know, if this is happening now, it's, you know, this is really the start of a revolution. 
um, a health, a health revolution, not like, not just healthcare, not just medicine, but like really, like, like I said, repairing ourselves, this, this, um, true longevity revolution that wasn't snake oil because, you know, there's always been a lot of snake oil and always getting like weirdos trying to sell various, like, I don't know, things to make you live longer that don't actually work. Right. But we had hit this inflection point where like some of this stuff is actually real and it's growing exponentially. And that was super exciting. Um, and, uh, and, and since I was in the public policy world, I got thinking about it and, you know, wow, well, if we could cure cancer or if we could really literally, um, replace hearts or fix hearts and, um, you know, tackle things like dementia, maybe slow down aging, which slows down, uh, which, you know, makes people live longer and, um, they, you know, they get dementia at much later ages. I started thinking, well, how does that change our world? Right. I mean, how does it change our public policy world? How does it change our cultural world? How does it change human life? Um, and one of my friends encouraged me to write the book. Uh, and so I went out and, uh, and raised some money to do it. And um, it, it wound up being a larger book than just public policy. Uh, so I wound up doing it outside the think tank. Uh, the think tank I was working at was very nice to me. They said, okay, what the project you're thinking of is not really a public policy project anymore. It's more of a cultural project because this is a really big, ambitious book. Um, and they said, so if you want to write it, you can, but you can't do it under the think tank because we are a public policy think tank <laughs> and we only do public policy stuff. And I, and I said, okay, that's fine. Um, how about I go away, I write my book and then I come back. Uh, and, and they said, okay, we'll give you a sabbatical. So they gave me like six months off to go write this book. Um, and so I got myself an agent, I got a publisher um, and I went and wrote the book and the book just crazy took off. And I wound up being on book tour for, I don't know, I feel like like, like two or three years. Um, and I, and I never went back to the think tank and I, and I felt really bad because, you know, I said I was going to come back. Uh, but at that point I had launched an entirely different career. And, uh, of course they were very understanding and happy for me that, you know, the book hit bestseller status and I was speaking all over the world and, um, and it was really a lot of fun, uh, meeting so many people internationally who were really interested in this topic and, and, and are working to make it happen. And so like, this isn't just an American thing. I mean, we're here, we're here in America and we talk about it all the time, but there are people everywhere in Japan and Russia and, you know, like China, all, all over the place who are, who really care about this issue. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Tell us a little bit more about your book, about 100 plus. So it's, it was a very ambitious book and it covered a number of topics. Uh, and it, it was so ambitious. I don't expect anybody to ever write it again. <laughs> um, I, you know, and, and I wrote it at a time when uh, the conversation on longevity had not been mainstreamed yet. Um, so that meant that I had to do a little bit of explaining before I could write the rest of the book. Um, so I, I began with a chapter on the history of longevity about how humans forever have been trying to, um, you know, find the elixir of life 
Uh, and, and it had always just been something that it was uh, out of reach for us, something that was just a dream. And, um, and, and that's what it was. It was just fiction for the longest time. Um, and then I, the second chapter is on the science, um, which explained why it's no longer a dream. And we're at this point in time where we really are gaining the tools to repair ourselves. Um, maybe not indefinitely, but certainly for much longer periods of time than we ever could before. Um, and, and that's what had changed. And, and the science chapter proved that by going over a number of different uh, therapies and uh, regenerative medicines and, and things like that. Um, and then the rest of the book launches into, okay, so uh, the science is real. We've been wanting this forever. The science is real. Now what? How does that change the world, Right. How does it change the environment? What, what will the environmental impact be of people living to uh, roughly... So what I did in the book, actually, is I said, okay, well, if we can repair ourselves and be healthy for much longer periods of time, maybe say we can roughly double our life expectancy again. We've already doubled our life expectancy uh, in the past, just um, fighting infectious diseases and through better sanitation and nutrition and things like that. But now we have all these other tools where we're fighting the things that kill us at the end of life, like the, the cancer and the diabetes and the, and all of those things. And so um, say we roughly double life expectancy again. Uh, how does that change the world? Say we could live to be 150 years old. Uh, and how does that impact the environment? How does it impact family life? Imagine having a healthy great-great-great-grandmother around. Um, how does, you know... Or, how does that impact marriage? How long do you stay married to someone then if you're going to live that long? And say you got married at 22 and <laughs> that's a long time to be married, right? But they love each other that much. <laughs> it, right? Yeah. Well, and you'd have to transition through and stages of life. So, you know, we already, we've already seen through history that, um, you know, people used to go from being a child directly to being an adult, right? It was just boom, child, adult, that's it. Uh, and then as we did expand our life expectancy, a new stages of life uh, started to grow, like the teenage years. Teenage, uh, the phase of being a teenager is somewhat new, is, is new historically. Um, and then this sort of like, and then this after the retirement uh, age is also relatively new. Um, and so when we, when we grow our life expectancies more, there'll, there'll be even more stages of life. And um, so it, it's something that we need to think about. And um, what else did I cover in the book? Oh, religion. What, uh, what happens to religion in a world where we don't uh, die quite as young as we used to? And, 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 and there's the prospect of us living for much, much longer periods of time. Do we care about God anymore? Um, Why and do you so, religion, if people can live longer? I mean, I can see it changed how you work longer, how much money you need, but how is it changing religion it's kind of mysterious to me. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, this, this was the most fascinating. Yes. And the economy, of course, <laughs> that's, that's the obvious one, right? In fact, that the first, the first chapter of the book I wrote was on the economy because economists have focused on, um, on time, time and money for, for so long. And there was so much literature, uh, to, to cover, uh, for, for longevity and, and the economy. So that, that's obviously a big one. Um, uh, but yes, back to religion. Uh, my theory, when I first started out, this is why it's interesting to me because I was wrong. <laughs> Things are much more interesting to me when, when I'm wrong and then I discover why I'm wrong. Um, I, I had this idea that, you know, the longer you and healthier you could live, 
the further away from God you would become because, you know, like the longer you can be here on earth, who cares about the afterlife, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that was my theory going in. Uh, and I went back to look at what happened in the past when we, you know, extended our life expectancy from like, say, 43 to the 80 it is now, right? Uh -huh. um, and, and, it, and every piece of data I collected was telling me I was wrong. That religion, people do not become less religious as they live longer. And I was like, what? Why? I, I, I don't get this. <laughs> and so I, I really spent a lot of time. First of all, I thought maybe the data was wrong. And so I spent a lot of time looking at the data and, and talking to the, you know, the Pew uh, Foundation has uh, done a lot of research on, uh, they have the a religion um, uh, uh, section um, in their research group. And they've, they have a lot of data on it. So I called them, I called some scholars who are working on uh, a religion. And finally, uh, uh, one of them said to me, well, you know, Sonia, religion is not just about the afterlife. You know that, right? He's like, he's like, if you, um, if you go into a bookstore, uh, or no, he said to me, he's like, religion is about how you live the best life. Religion is about how you live the good life. And he said um, that right now, if you go into a bookstore, there's there's all these books on self-help. But before self-help came along, religion was self-help. And religion is essentially an instruction manual on how to live your life. So if you have longer life, theoretically, you actually need more help figuring out how to live it better. And so actually, religion can get stronger as we live longer because we need more help figuring out how to live the good life. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Yes. And that was a, that was an aha moment for me. And I was like, Ooh, wow. And, and then, and then he broke it down. This was a scholar who did um, work on religion and economics and sort of the, the economics of religion. And he said, you know, there's different types of religion. So some religions uh, won't do well in the new world where we extend our life expectancy and others will do well. And if you think of it from a sort of uh, gaining customers point of view, right? This is how economists think of things. <laughs> the, the, the religions that focus more on the afterlife are going to lose customers, right? And, th and those tend to be sort of the more extreme religions. And the, re the religions that focus more on just how to live the good life, those are the ones that are going to gain more customers in the future because they're, what they're selling is more uh, applicable to, to the world that those people live in. It seems like there's a new opportunity for new religions then, I think. Yes. And, and, and indeed on how you define a religion. I mean, there's some scholars in the, in the religious uh, sphere that say, you know, even like you could consider Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> the listeners who are listening, even know who Oprah Winfrey is anymore. She used to be a very famous talk show host. Um, but, you know, some, some scholars consider her sort of this religious figure because she has all these elements of religion to what she does, you know, she's this, this, this figurehead that people, um, uh, look at and she, as she talks about, and she, there's all these texts that she yeah. tells them to read. And you know, there's all these different things that you have if you're a, a religion and, um, she kind of checks all the boxes. So I, I thought it'd be good to, before we, you know, continue with a lot more, I mean, there's a lot more to talk about. I want to make sure that be covered about your new organization, the Alliance for Longevity Initiative. If you can tell us more a bit about it and what's your mission, what you're trying to achieve through this organization that you created. Right, right. Well, we launched this week, uh, this Thursday. We have our, it's a brand new organization and we're doing a big launch event on Thursday. Um, and it's a bipartisan organization. I feel like longevity is actually probably one of the only topics 
that exists anymore that, uh, you know, every side can agree on. <laughs> we all agree that it's better to be healthy than sick. Oh, thank God there's something we can agree on. <laughs> so we are a bipartisan group of Democrats and Republicans who are coming together that realize uh, that it's time for the government to get involved. Like I said, we sort of hit an inflection point um, around 2000, where it was very clear that we're in a different era of, uh, of healthcare. Um, and, uh, it, it was very clear to everybody in the tech world and everybody in the biotech world. It wasn't clear to the government. The government had no idea, just kind of like, you know, they had no idea the internet was coming, even, even though they helped fund it right, <laughs> through the department of defense. But, um, you know, the people in Congress, uh, it's, oh, they're always reactionary to new innovations. I mean, this, this is just how it goes. Um, and, but the time has finally come that we do need some government action on this front, uh, for, uh, for a few reasons. Um, uh, one of which, uh, is important to me as an investor is that there needs to be an FDA pathway for longevity companies to get their therapies approved. And right now you can't, if you're a company that's creating an anti-aging, uh, solution, a solution that slows down aging or a solution that impacts aging, the diseases of aging in some way, you can't get approved as an anti-aging drug or therapy through the FDA because that, that pathway just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, and so what those companies have to do right now, as I'm sure you're aware because you're, you're in this world, is they have to pretend they're doing something else. They're like, okay, we're a cancer company. Okay, we're a diabetes company. Okay, we're a heart disease company because those are all the diseases of aging. And so anything that slows down aging is going to have an impact on those three things. Mm -hmm. um, and they just have to sort of roll the dice and decide which one. Uh, and, and, and that's silly. I mean, I, let's just be forthright about what we're doing here, right? I mean, so and so, so we, we've got to change some of our uh, regulatory pathways. Um, and then it would be nice to see more funding for, for the longevity companies because, um, you know, this is really a revolution that's going to change the world. And the American government has a responsibility to help um, to help protect American lives, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life is the number one thing here. And, um, and we actually, as a country, haven't been doing very well at protecting lives. Our life expectancy isn't going down for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and, and we need to turn that around. But you're saying, talking about like, you know, protect, uh, make, protecting life, and it's been going down in a way for this country, but some of it is not because of the the aging diseases, some of it because some people have uh, less access to healthcare. And there's a lot of violence probably that's uh, also... And, and opioid addiction. Yeah, the, no, you're right. You're quite right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of other reasons for it. Um, that was just to make the point that we haven't been doing a very good job at protecting life. There's a lot of other things that need to happen as well. Right. Um, but uh, this is the one obvious thing that government can be doing that's going to have a clear, big, huge impact mm -hmm. um, on, on health and life and reducing suffering. I think it's almost like um, when we decided to go to the moon, when there's a concerted effort, then things are moving. And then there's also, you know, the byproduct of all the effort. You see that this is an, also an opportunity for a government to take on. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, you know, and the government to some extent, I shouldn't say they haven't been involved at all. I mean, you know, there was the human genome project that was, uh, that was government funded and, um, you know, and, and, and there is some funding. It's a minuscule amount compared to other funding, 
for for uh, aging research, but um, much more should be done because if we can solve uh, for aging or if we can slow down aging, we hit a number of diseases all at once. We're hitting the cancers, we're hitting the diabetes, we're hitting the Alzheimer's. But, you know, it's like one thing for many, which which makes a lot more sense than trying to do them all separately. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, you you know, there's a lot of you know cancers are now when you have certain cancer is not the death sentence anymore that you can manage it. You can, you know, uh, some people even can get cured from the cancer. So I feel like we're making some. Absolutely. Yes. No, exactly. And that, that was my point earlier is that we've actually made a decent amount of progress, um, fighting the diseases that kill us in older age. Um, and so, so it can be done. We just really need to push harder. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, I think sometimes um, the government needs to provide more funding for more innovation. At the same time, maybe the government feel like we've done, we provide the seeds already with the human genome. And now it's time for the private sector to pick it up. And the private sector is picking it up. They absolutely are. Um, and and this that was my point about the FDA too, is that that's why the, the mm-hmm. you know, because therapies can't hit the market without the FDA approval. So, I mean, it's, it's, there's a partnership that goes on between industry and the government. And um, the government just needs to step up to its role a bit more. And, and it's really only because it hasn't really paid that much attention to it yet. I mean, I'm I'm happy to be starting this organization because, um, you know, aside from educating people in government, we're also going to, you know, educate the general public. I mean, this is, this is an organization to, um, you know, create, social and political action around around the issue of longevity. I feel like uh, the education for the general public, I think it's so important to get. I think if more people are educated, there seems to be more support of initiative that has been done by the government when the people feel like their life might be impacted. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad that you feel that that's part of the part of the, the organization to do a lot of the education. I don't want to ask, I mean, I, you, you seem so busy. You wrote a book, you do all these things. You're also an investor. Uh, I thought it would be uh, fun to, you know, I'm sure you've seen a lot of exciting technologies out there that can um, help address this whole aging and longevity. Is there anything that stuck up in your mind that you can share with us? Well, there's, yes, like you say, there's so much going on and it's very, very exciting. I, you know, I wish I had more money to invest because I see so many exciting companies all the time. The thing I'm most excited about right now uh, is something probably a lot of people aren't thinking about yet, but it was something that was glaringly missing uh, when I when I wrote the book. So when I wrote the science chapter of my uh, of my book, it was sort of to prove that all these great technologies and therapies were happening so that we could live longer, um, and I outlined technology that would fix almost every single part of the body, except sort of for the brain, um, unless you include um, small molecules that slow down whole body aging. But the brain was sort of this missing element in, in, in all of it. And, um, and now, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, I guess 10 years ago, uh, fast forward, um, a lot more is being a lot more exciting things are being done with the brain and uh, and scientists are really making progress. And so I, I'm super and 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 it's come to the point, not only are scientists making progress, but it's come to the point where there's things that could be investable 
by the private sector. And that's the exciting thing. I mean, things can stay in the lab and you don't know how long they're going to be there for. But if they get to the point where they could be investable, well, then that's something. That means it's almost ready to, to hit the market right. and, and make a big difference. Is, so uh, is there like a certain technology that you, you, you know, you've, you're excited about that you can share with us? Yes. Um, so the, there's a lot of things going on um, and some of them are stealth. So I'm just sitting here thinking, which ones can I mention and which ones can't I? <laughs> there's, there's a really great uh, researcher at, um, at Stanford who, uh, Sergio Pasca, who's uh, come up with these things called uh, uh, these brain organoids. And uh, it's sort of this 3D model, 3D, uh, like mini brains. I hate to call them mini brains because they're not really that. They're not like a real person or anything. They're just, there's some brain cells in a dish where they can do, but they can do real experiments on the brain tissue. The problem with a lot of science research, as I'm sure you know, is that, that, that what works on animals sometimes doesn't work on humans. In fact, oftentimes things that work on animals don't work on humans. Um, and so working with human, a 3D human uh, tissue uh, is much more likely to yield um, the, the results that you're looking for. And so he's doing fantastic work uh, on that there. And, and, and he's collaborating with a number of people all over the world who are, who are using his technology, his organoids for um, uh, different things. Uh, and so it's really spurring this whole revolution um, in, in brain research. And so that's, that's very exciting. That's exciting. So I'm going to look, look him up. Uh, I have not heard of his work, so definitely something that I'll I'll, I'll check check it out. Um, so one of the things that I, I think we briefly talk about um, was uh, you, you mentioned on the book that when you live longer, people have to work longer, and I think it's exciting that everybody can live longer, but uh, and healthier, and everything in life. There's also the pro and the con. How can we maximize the positive impact? and try to minimize the negative impact of people live longer. Well, that's why I wrote my book, actually, um, because I think we should start thinking about everything now. And the more we think about things in advance, the more uh, prepared we are, will be to deal with things um, when, when they hit us in the future. And so, you know, obviously the pros, but there's a lot of pros and there's a lot of, there's some cons. You know, there's more pros than cons. Let me just say that. It's better to be alive than dead, full stop. Um, but, uh, and, and of course, uh, the, the longer you live in a healthy state, the more you, um, the more you learn and the more you can make connections between different areas that you wouldn't have made connections about before. And so that creates new innovations and new innovations, uh, fuel the economy and then everybody gets wealthier. And the, the, the economists have tons and tons of literature on this, uh, health extension drives the economy. It's, it, there's a clear, clear, um, uh, relationship there. Uh, the downside, and, and, and there's a, there's a moral, of course, there's a moral benefit to staying alive longer in that, you know, um, it, it, then you get to do all these, it, it, life is a good thing and, um, and, and reducing human suffering and, and, and all of those things. Um, on, on the negative side, uh, I, I think the biggest, um, things that we need to look out for are, uh, here's the least bad one is like intergenerational conflicts. So the more generations that are around, um, you know, every generation has its own set of stories and its own, um, idea of what the world 
looks like and is. Um, and, you know, typically it just kind of, you know, typically there's like three or four maybe at the same time and that's it. But we start getting more generations and, and they're all working together, right? Like, can you imagine a, in the future, a 20 year old uh, working at a, in, in the same, on the same team with like a 120 year old or something. And, uh, and how much will they have in common? So um, those, those are things that we'll have to get over. And, uh, and, and I think we will, it's just that there'll be lots of discussions over that and, and the best ways to do that. And, um, but humans have been getting over things for a long time. So I think we'll be okay. Um, the other thing that I think is more serious is, uh, the idea, uh, the um, divide between the haves and the have nots and it, because it already exists. If you look at the, the, um, life expectancy numbers, um, not only internationally, there's like a huge, you know, difference. If you go and look at the CIA fact book, um, there's like a, there's a 40 year difference between the lowest country and the highest country, longest lived country. Um, that's 40 years. That's like how old some of your listeners are, right? Um, their whole life is the difference between the two countries. And at that point, it's sort of, that might be worth fighting over, right? That might be worth going over to war for, especially if that divide really grows, like there's some country where everybody gets to live to be 200 years old in another country where they're still, you know, their life expectancy is only 50 years old. There's, they're going to die at around 50. And so, you know, it's, they, they want what we have and they might actually fight to get it. Right. And then you have smaller versions of that within each country. Right. Um, so usually uh, wealthier, more educated people live longer than, you know, the poor, less educated people. And, and that's a problem. And it's, we already know it's a problem, right? It's, it's already something that's there, but I think we're going to have to make a more uh, concentrated effort at solving that and making sure uh, that the, the technologies get rolled out to everyone. I mean, you know, the, the wealthy always get new technolo- technologies first. I mean, cell phones, I remember way back when cell phones first came out. Um, now I'm showing my age. Uh, there were there were these big bricks in a big suitcase, and these rich guys walked around with a big suitcase, and they were the only ones who had cell phones, right? <laughs> and I and I, and I remember looking at them. I lived in I lived in Toronto at the time in Canada, and I remember looking at these rich guys walking down the street with a big briefcase and going, "Oh my God, that guy! Why is he doing that? That's huge, right? Like it's ridiculous." Um, but then a few years later, a tiny little cell phone came, well, tiny compared to the briefcase, <laughs> uh, you know, came out and I bought one because I could, because it was cheap. Um, and, you know, hopefully uh, biotechnologies followed that trajectory where it's pretty quick. The time uh, difference between the wealthy getting it and the average person getting it is, is shortened. Um, but, it, but it's not... And this is where the government comes in as well, by the way. The government should be paying attention to this and the government should be trying to make it so that it uh, that everything rolls out quicker. Right. I think that is uh, the, the role of the government to try to make that happen. I think it's, it's hard to do it just from the private sector. So, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is exciting. I'm looking forward to the time when I can lift until 120. I think I'll pick 120. That sounds like a good number. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, give me a lot of time to do a lot of other things. Right. Right. So you can try different things. Well, thank you so much. Uh, 
sharing your thought and I'm looking forward to getting to 120 years old. <laughs> Thanks. It was, uh, it was great to chat with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.